Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Vivian Ford is the Senior Vice President of Operations at Comma.ai, based in San Diego. Most new cars on the road today are built with features designed to assist with driving, but fail to deliver. Comma's open source software, OpenPilot, enables your car to steer, accelerate, and brake automatically in its lane. It's easy to install and trusted by thousands of drivers with over 10,000 miles. Vivian previously worked at Eastwick Communications for one year, back when it was six people in a garage in San Francisco. So Vivian, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you're working on. Welcome to the Second Command podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So tell us just a little bit more about Comma so we understand kind of where where these devices are being installed or how they're being installed in cars. What kind of cars are we installing them in? Because I'm especially excited about autonomous vehicles. Yeah, totally. So basically, Comma sells uh, a hardware development kit um, that works on existing basically 2016 and newer um, Hondas, Toyotas, Subarus, whole, whole range of supported cars. Um, we sell this hardware that runs our open source software. Um, so back in 2017, we open sourced this thing called OpenPilot, which is essentially autopilot for existing vehicles. So um, a, a driver assistance system that takes you on the highway um, and will, on the highway, will drive you 90% of the time. Um, and then when you're doing, you know, back road driving, you obviously take over. Um, and so we have thousands of cars driving with um, both the the comma eon and open pilot um and we have over 10 million miles of driving data collected um and are yeah just working on upping that number and and getting more and more compatible cars and more people with the system in their car unbelievable okay so this is a third-party software then are you starting to license this software to any of the car companies or are you just selling this as like an aftermarket addition to vehicles so, so the software, yes, yeah, so the software is under MIT license. Um, so we open source this on GitHub. Um, if someone wanted to go and build a system that ran the software and then sell that system, they'd be completely entitled to. Um, we are, I mean, we basically just sell to whoever wants to buy it. If Ford wanted to buy, you know, a hundred comma eons, um, you know, the, the hardware and install it in their vehicles, they could go ahead and do that. Um, you know, we don't have a business development department. We have uh, we have a website with an order now button, and we will fulfill on Mondays and Thursdays. Wow. Okay. Um, so I I was ten years ago. I rode in the first Google experimental car at TED. Um, I was at the main TED conference, sitting in the audience, and someone from Google came out and talked about this vehicle, and then they showed a video and. You know, I'm sitting beside Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates is in the audience, and, and they're talking about this car that none of us had seen. I don't think very many had even heard about it 10 years ago. And then the, the person who was doing the demonstration said, by the way, if you want to drive in it, it's out this door on the parking lot. And 1,800 people stood up and went running. Um, and I got to drive in it. I have a video on my laptop of me driving in this Prius 10 years ago with Mort, Matt Groening, the founder of The Simpsons, was beside me in the vehicle. And we drove on a test track 10 years ago at 45 miles an hour. And I was just going, holy shit, like this thing is extraordinary. 
Yeah. And I've since owned two Teslas. I've been driving them now for years. How, how complex, like, so, so MIT labs developed the software and then you guys are third party licensing it or did you develop? MIT license. Yeah, yeah, we developed the software. Yeah, it's under MIT license, but we did develop the software. Um, and so, yeah, ba- basically we, um, you know, we maintain the software. The beauty of having open source software is that, one, you get a community that can contribute to it. So there's so many, you know, there's so many makes and models out there that are a little different in how they run. And yeah. so when you have a community member that wants this to be supported for their car, and if they go through the effort to, you know, send a pull request to have their car supported and merged with, you know, the next version of OpenPilot, like that's fantastic. You're building community of people that are, um, you know, actively working to basically like get to, to, you know, to push forward the technology. Um, and also a beautiful thing about the open source code is that, um, code is, you know, anyone can, if anyone's concerned with the code, they can go and read through it. They can, you know, if there's safety concerns or whatever, to some extent, code is speech. So they can go ahead and, and have their, you know, have a look at, at everything we do um, and decide for themselves if this is something they want to put in their car instead of getting into, you know, like a, a, a I don't know, a, a Honda Civic with the Lane Keep Assist system and having really little idea of, of how it works and just kind of, you know, trusting it and engaging it and, and <laughs> seeing it for yourself, you know, how it works uh, on the road instead of. Why am I scared of this? Why is this got me like with the open source idea that somebody can just download this and put it into their car? Why is that scaring the hell out of me? When I, when again, I've been, you know, I drove my Tesla model three from Scottsdale to Vancouver and let it drive 2000 to the 2200 miles on its own. But this scares me for some reason. What am I missing? I think there's a couple of reasons that these this is scary, and the first one is that anytime there's a, a, a autonomous vehicle accident, like it is so publicized, it's publicized until people can just you know get every single last click on their story possible. So we have so so many ideas in our head that like these systems aren't safe or, you know, Oh, but did you see that, you know, this autopilot accident caused this issue? Whereas it's like, sure. Along with that article, what if we also publicized how many people died just by driving a regular car that regular day? Car. Sure. Totally. You know? so I think there's that level. That's a little alarming. The open sourced um, code, I think also scares people because um, I don't want to say that any of like the response, uh, like responsibility is a hard word to place in this situation, but um, it's kind of like, hey, take a look at our code. If you like our code, then maybe you'll you know want to explore and experiment with it and 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 see how it runs with your Honda Civic. And so there's like an active, um, active like exploration phase that the driver is is using because they're downloading this code from the internet and they're they're trying it in their vehicle as opposed to kind of a black box delivery of, you know, Tesla autopilot. Here you are, take a drive. But where, like, where are they testing this? So they're downloading the software and they're just throwing it in their car and they're going for a drive around Scottsdale. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, but the wow. thing is, we have, we have, millions of miles of driving data from this. We have hundreds of YouTube videos of people driving around with this system. So wow. you know, where are they testing it? Like they're, you know, it's, it's better tested almost than 
any other self-driving car company's product because they don't even have a product really, you know, like there's only so many, I mean, part of the, the big issue too is like, there's so many edge cases with driving that it's impossible to, to hand code all of the edge cases of driving. Sure. I think it like Elon Musk had a line when we first came out with the system and he was like, you know, sure. 99% of this is easy. It's the 1% that's really hard, yeah, which yeah. is really true. Right. Um, but when you try to capture all of the edge cases, like Waymo with like, I don't know what their fleet is. Let's say their fleets like hundred cars or whatever, but that's still just, that's not going to get you all of the edge cases. And so when you're just relying and depending on, you know, all of the, the, all of the data from your own cars, as opposed to kind of like decentralizing the, the data consumption and getting data from people all over the world, you know, all of a sudden you have a much more like fully packaged um, kind of, you know, data exploration to go oh. off of were there, were there a lot of legal hurdles in getting launched or getting the product out the door? Certainly. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we got a letter from the National Highway Transportation Safety Authority back in 2016. Um, and so, yeah, so, so we, we actually, I think we, I think we opened source in 2016. Who knows? The years are all the same. Um, but regardless, they, they were concerned. We had announced at TechCrunch that we were selling this product with OpenPilot on the product um, and that this product was going to drive your car. I mean, it was a lot of hype. The product can't drive, you know, nothing can drive your car. You still can't sit in a fully self-driving car. Yeah. Everything is still a, a driver assistance system, still level two. Um, and so... There was definitely, you know, I, I think similar to when you ask, why am I scared of this? There's just a lack of information around a lot of this, this stuff. And so a big thing with open sourcing is like, how do we show the information? How do we, you know, how do we just like, yeah, explain like what's going on and, and, and publish more of the information, publish more of the data. We definitely tried to do this with like more medium posts. We've tried to publish more, you know, like this is how we're using the data. This is how we're trying, we're, we're being compliant with um, NHTSA's requests. Um, they basically sent a list of, of 17 questions. I think it was about 17. Um, and they were totally reasonable. They were totally reasonable questions asking us, you know, like what, what is this product? What is it doing? How can you guarantee certain aspects about the product? Um, and, uh, but apart from that, I think the, I think like the trend of the general self-driving space is moving more towards like, not even away from regulation, but like when you have, you know, Waymo come out and announce that they like hyped it up a little too much for the first X years that they've been, you know, uh, working on self-driving cars, or you have all of these companies that are slowly realizing like this problem is actually really difficult. Like not that regulation catches up, but it just, the, the problem slows down that the, the yep. Yep. pace, People think it'll be solved slows down and that reassures people automatically yeah i think it's also the people are getting more and more comfortable with it now we're just we're, we're not hearing about the accidents constantly we have heard the arguments now that there's other cars that are crashing we're not hearing about those so i think we're just getting more and more comfortable with the idea and then we're also you know four years ago it was just weird or five years ago it was weird hearing a tesla creep up behind you and now it's like oh you you almost can hear them now which is so bizarre right we could never hear them before and now we can hear them which is really strange um, so how did you get involved in the company? So, um, the founder, I, I lived in this house called the crypto castle in San Francisco, very San Francisco. Um, it was basically a 
three-story townhouse in downtown San Francisco with um, a bunch of people who were interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, and George, the founder, moved into the basement of this house. He was basically looking to start his own self-driving car startup and needed a basement where he could hack away a car. Um, and so I met him um, and uh, became friends. He, um, I like just lived and saw him develop this company for the first like seven or eight months. Um, and then in uh, about a year later, um, about three and a half years ago, uh, he was looking for an operations person. Um, and I went up to him and I said he should hire me and uh, definitely took some convincing. Um, and uh, yeah, about two weeks later, I think I was offered the job and I took it with very little operations experience. That's really cool. Okay. So you guys got involved. You saw it in the earliest or early stages and then you went to, and you, did you launch at Disrupt in New York? Uh, it was SF Disrupt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that was 2016, very early stages. Um, we, we had, so we had, he had done a Bloomberg article in 2015, which launched, I think that it was like really the first of, first unofficial official launch of just Kama as a company and people were intrigued to see what he was up to, what he was mm. doing. Um, and then in at TechCrunch, we announced this whole, you know, shebang of a product kind of trying to fall into the hype of self-driving cars before you quickly realize that all of that is dangerous to fall into. Um, and then we open sourced. So yeah, um, correct myself. We open sourced the software in 2016. We had no hardware. Um, we had, I mean, we had hardware. We had open sourced the hardware required to run in the software, um, but we weren't selling it. Um, and then um, we had a, a community of people just like building out this hardware and, and, and working on the product. Um, and then we we launched the Comma Eon, the hardware that supports OpenPilot if, if people want it. Also, we launched it. It was a dash cam. So, um, you know, for people, dash cam development kit. Um, launched that in 2017 and kind of have consistently um, been, yeah, updating with, with new, um, yeah, versions of both Eon and OpenPilot. And how are you funded? I, I, so through A16Z, A16Z, uh, we're still series seed. Um, A16Z led our two... Uh, are two rounds. Um, yeah, we did two series seeds. How and much have you raised so far? About 8.1 million. That's pretty substantial for a seed. Yeah, so it was two seeds. So the first seed was 3.1 million. The second seed was 5 million. Um, we have we have revenue. Um, we have revenue and we keep our, pro, our we keep operations very, very lean. Um, we're a team of 13, 12 or 13. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, the real goal has been how do we become profitable, which is not a question that startups ask themselves. Um, but I think it was, you know, kind of a, it was important to be like, if this is going to be sustainable, how can we make money along the way as opposed to just blowing through millions and millions of dollars to technology that you can't even ship, you know? I, um, yeah, I led, I, I was brought in as a, a coach for the team at Hootsuite about four or five years ago, and I led their strategic planning retreat, and I pushed them to consider profitability as a way to scale instead of more um, equity and debt financing, and they decided to go for it. And I'm like, I don't understand why people don't. Like, it's so simple to actually build a real company if you decide to, right. um, and you have way more control. So that is, that is, is that is your focus then? Totally. Yeah. And what you said was build a real company. That's exactly mm -hmm. what we want to 
to. I mean, we, we, yeah, it's, it's way more control. It's also just um, the easiest way to know that you're actually adding value to the world is, you know, it, it, are you people making are buying money? It. Yeah. If people are buying it and you're making money off of it and it keeps you lean, it keeps you smart and scrappy. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, mm-hmm. We think when WhatsApp sold for like 1.4 billion, they only had 50 employees. Yeah. You know, so you yeah. guys are on the same trajectory. So and I love that that he was working with um, getting some early stage free PR as well. I wrote a book about a year ago called Free PR, and it talks about how to leverage free publicity for your brand and how to generate it in house instead of using a PR firm. Yeah. And then how to kind of because um, you guys have got some huge upside clearly with PR, I'm sure as well. Yeah, totally. Um, well, also, yeah. I mean, our our so George, our president, the founder. Um, he comes, he's, he comes from like a hacking background. So people have like followed his, you know, what he's been up to and and what his projects have been throughout. And so that was helpful too. Um, And also it's, it's like an underdog story that first of all, Silicon Valley loves. And Mm. second of all, all of the people in San Francisco love where it's like, you know, this one guy, you know, puts together some self-driving car that like, you know, competes against Tesla's and whether or not it's true, whether or not, you know, how much hype you want to have. If you get a story like that to start off your company, people are going to be excited to see where it's at. Yeah. I missed out on the seed round at Tesla by not putting a $5,000 deposit down on the original Roadster Oh man. 15, 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. I was a bad, bad call. I also told the founder of Uber, it was a stupid idea when we heard him deciding before he launched, I was, took him to burning man and he was explaining it to me. I'm like, this was before he hired Travis. So, um, yeah, I think you're onto something. <laughs> if I told you it's a bad idea, go all in though as well. Cause I was worried about it. <laughs> it was like, can you tell me that's a bad idea? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Okay, so I know how you got involved in the business and when you started dealing with the whole open source, what can you teach us about that? What's been that, what have been the, the I guess, what have been the hassles? What have been the pitfalls and the, the struggles with the whole open source side of the business? I mean, honestly, there are not many, I, I mean, the beauty of, of being an open source business is that it forces you to like you're not you're not going to just open source your software and then be very secretive about everything else you do. You're going to be an open company, mm. and so you're going to approach what you do with an open mindset. And so, um, kind of a default mindset of comma is um, like publicize what's happening, um, be honest about what's happening. Um, you know, like yeah, there's nothing we don't want to have things to hide because if you have secrecy, you probably don't have anything at all is the idea. Um, and so I think that that's definitely a, just like a positive, a very positive reinforcement of, of what open source does. Um, for me, like from a, a personal perspective, I had come, I joined comma from like a tech PR firm that was very much like embargoed until this date. Don't you dare break that, you know? And so I, I enter into this world of comma where all of these people are deep, you know, deeply admire the open source community and you, you can't help but get stressed about potential competitors that decide to, you know, use this or get a leg up on whatever they're doing. But then you realize that that's exactly the point where like, if you do open source this and you do give even, you know, even like people who aren't necessarily direct competitors, but if, this information is out there in the world, then everyone already has a plus one to having this information. So we just like help, you know, and 
also like if a, if a competitor comes along and builds a better hardware system that's going to run this system better well then you better work your ass off to make sure that that's not the case and that your system is always promising you know the the better experience for users um so definitely for me initially it was kind of like a jolt of of a different way of thinking that's cool so you said you came in and you didn't have any operations experience so how did you how have you learned it <laughs> i mean on the job <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I, um, I think the, th- the thing I quickly realized was that operations, you don't want glory in operations. You want to be like as behind the scenes as possible because it means that the company is being run and people aren't realizing that something's an issue if, the, you know, you don't want there to be issues, um, which was a very interesting, just, just a different approach of like, okay, how do I, you know, how do I go about this? How do I how do I make sure that the things that are happening are, are happening um, in a way that, that people don't like people can do their job. Um, and thankfully like comma grew with me, you know, comma when I joined comma was, I, I think we had 10 or 11 people cause we had interns and those interns left. So we were like down to six at one point. So six person company, if you've never done operations before you can learn and you can like manage quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and because comma has scaled at like a, a very, I think like appropriate rate, it's been a, a good, a good way of like learning. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you're in San Francisco, every other person does operations to some extent. So. Right. Osmosis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How about attracting talent? I mean, the Bay Area has got to be one of the most competitive areas for, for, for tech talent for sure. And for um, even for the entrepreneurial scene. So how are you attracting talent? Yeah, so this was very interesting. And, and one of the reasons we actually moved to San Diego. Um, oh, right. Yeah, you're in San Diego now, too. We moved down to San Diego. The, I think initially, I mean, working at Comma is different than working at almost any other company. So it, already with just like the open source factor, you're going to attract people that are interested in the open source community. And that was key. So like number one way for us to attract talent was like through GitHub pouring over people's githubs making sure that you know like people were already contributing to the open source community people who are excited about those projects are going to be really excited about yeah. you know open sourced assistance yeah. system so that was kind of an a helpful way um also i think that so yeah it is really hard to you know when google's going to pay a machine learning engineer hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're trying to keep your startup very lean and you're not going to offer that um what you get on the flip side though is people that are in it because they really do believe that this company is going to succeed which is always the goal um and so you know you people who come in and and take you know you, you give a sliding scale of equity and salary and people who take like you know the lowest salary and the highest equity is always like a positive, you know, reinforcement of, of where this person thinks the company's going moving to San Diego. Um, so it was hard. It's, it's obviously super hard to recruit. It's obviously very hard to attract talent. Um, and going to San Diego, one of the ideas was like, okay, maybe we'll be able to attract talent more easily. Qualcomm's Mm -hmm. here, you know, maybe we'll be different than the thousands of startups in the Bay area that are all trying to attract the same people. Yeah. And has that played out? So ironically, we, we, a lot of our employees, not a lot, but a a decent amount now have come from our community. Um, And so that's 
proven to be like more and more the best way to get people um, is people that are that find themselves in the common community are already interested and then if they've you know contributed really positively floating the idea of joining the company is like an exciting next step um, so and also just kind of realizing that San Diego is also a more pleasant place to live, I think, than the Bay Area. Bay Area is right. very expensive. San Diego so is amazing. Yeah, San Diego is great. It's easier to attract people from, you know, wherever in the U.S. to move to San Diego than to move to San Francisco. Well, San Diego's got a pretty good um, technology sector as well, pretty good entrepreneurial sector. Totally. There's a lot of biotech, but, you know, also that, that helps because then we're, we're not biotech, so we're different. Yeah, I've got a bunch of my, um, for, I've coached a lot of companies and I've got a, a number of different coaching clients that are in San Diego. And then a couple of our um, members of our COO or Alliance are in San Diego as well. It's just a, it's a great, great market. So what are you guys struggling with right now? What are the pain points? What are the pain points? Um, I think the main pain point is like, what, what, what do you want your company to look like? What, you know, you've built this company and you're... You, you're working towards profitability. So this is the this is for now the ultimate goal, you know, like in the immediate future. But what kind of a company do you scale into? What kind of a company do you become? How do you decentralize the responsibilities of the company so you don't have like one single point of failure being your CEO or whatever? Um, how do you, you know, how do you work on... I guess at the core of it, like it's our product and the company, we, we talk about a lot, stability. So stability on the product and stability in the company. Um, and how do you build something that will outlast everyone that is currently at this company? Um, you know, the, those kind of thoughts that you have when you, yeah, if you're profitable, you can self-sustain for hopefully a very, very long time. Um, and then what does that look like? And future? so how, how are you kind of giving the vision to your team right now? How are you articulating it or, or getting them aligned and inspired? And then how do you also keep a group of people super excited when they're coming on for equity and the company's seemingly moving towards a profitability focus? Does that distract them at all? I mean, and, and by all rights, they should be focused on profitability anyway, but if it's build or bust, that's a different goal. Um, so how do you keep people incentivized is an interesting no, one. Not less incentivized and more, um, more aligned, more aligned and, and inspired, you know, with the vision. Yeah. Um, so they're not just trying to focus on an exit. I think what helps is having an actual user base. So we have like a, a community discord. Um, and a lot of our users are on that discord and a lot of our employees are on that discord talking with users, um, you know, like having beta programs and stuff like that. That helps because you literally see what you are doing affecting people that you are talking. Um, being a 13 person company, what you work on has a big impact. You know, you're not working on like a product project with other people and then have that be scrapped. Like if you don't do something, it's obvious and it, it hurts, you know, it hurts the company. So I think that alignment like will come naturally um, just people seeing, you know, what their work has. Um, And then in terms of like the profitability equity thing, um, I don't even think it's directly related to comma when people hear that. I think it's more of a realization of like the state of VCs and the state of San Francisco and Silicon Valley where like that money will dry up. The money that they're just handing out to companies will dry up. So if you do want to succeed, if you do want to win at self-driving cars and solve self-driving cars, 
what better way than to create a profitable company that doesn't rely on these investors? Um, And I think that mindset just helps in general, you know, people get on board with, with, yeah, putting profit first. Can you, and I know that you're still privately held and still seed round. Can you, can you disclose some numbers to us in terms of, of users and revenue numbers at all? Or does you, do you keep that stuff private still? pretty open about that so we had i think our highest sales month was around 160 grand in in revenue um uh, and you know we we spend at a rate of um about you know about probably 180 grand a month is our burn rate um so you know close to close to getting those two numbers uh very aligned um which is yeah which would be great um and ideally, we don't need to raise money again. You know, ideally, we are profitable early next year and, and can continue sailing. How are you getting the, the word out right now? How are you guys getting the, the buzz? Is it PR? Is it just your community? Is it... Um... It's really, yeah, it's community. Um, it's, it's really the community. We don't really have any... We don't have anyone here that does marketing. We don't really have anyone here that isn't an engineer apart from like myself. I do operations. That's kind of engineering in some source, but in some way, but we don't have marketing department. We don't have biz dev department. So um, it's really the community. It's really like, you know, if someone posts a YouTube video and then it gets on Reddit or something like that, you know, like where, yeah, how are those sales coming? Um, We also have, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not like the simplest thing when you purchase the, the Eon dev kit, you know, it's still, you're like, is my car supported? You have all these questions. So there's still a lot of low hanging fruit of the people that come to our website. How can, you know, how can we make it super clear for them if they want to purchase it? What are they purchasing? What they need to do. Um, and so, yeah, but, but definitely like getting more people to the site, um, is, is a, is of course a, a goal. Um, I think we're still just focusing on like the people who do come to the site. How can we make sure that it's abundantly clear what, what they could be buying or not? And this is not expensive. This is 600 bucks. Yeah. Very <laughs> expensive. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I think, by the way, I think the autonomous vehicles will be the cause of the next baby boom. Um, you guys can quote me on that. You can put that in all of your PR for real, right? You think about like people driving in LA traffic for an hour. What are you going to be doing? You're not going to be hanging out in the front seat. You're going to hop in the back and that will be, then I'll be like, yeah, I'll I'll commute to work. Like people know I don't want to work from home anymore. I want to commute. Do you, do you run on a remote team or do you all run out of the office together? We have one guy who's remote, but he was with us for two years, so he knew very well how the company worked. Um, but really, try to be everyone in the office just helps so much more with you know. And also, like I joke that we don't really have any meetings. We have one meeting a week on Monday mornings for you know just to, to sync up what's happening. But I kind of joke that like everything is a meeting at comma, just in the sense that like you know yeah. at lunch when you miss a conversation, you're missing a lot. You know to be you really at all times people are talking about their projects and like what's the holdup and you know so um yeah it's just it's pretty important to be yeah i think it's i think it's critical in the early stage for sure of a business to actually have that cooler time and lunch time and just kind of interacting um that that beta transfer is amazing that happens there so how about yourself and what are you working on your skills right now as a second in command so I run operations here. So basically everything, everything non-technical. So I do, um, you know, 
yeah, operations, recruiting, accounting, legal, HR, um, you know, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. Um, right now, personally, I'm working on, um, uh, so we have some exciting things coming next year that we're working on um, and recruiting in this area, recruiting in San Diego, understanding like how do we, yeah, how, how, how do we build out teams here for, you know, reaching out to people in the U.S. and, and abroad um, and kind of all the things that come in operations. You know, if I were to give you like a given day, it would change drastically from one day to the next. How about technology tools? What tools do you use or does the company use to, to scale, to manage? Yeah, so uh, for operations, um, I mean, I I don't know exactly if these are the tools you're thinking, but like I'm such a big fan of <laughs> these adorable startups in San Francisco like Gusto and Zero that are incredibly helpful and have fantastic customer su- support because they like because they need to be because they want to be. Yep. Um, I really I have been like very almost pleasantly happy that the startup world is a thing, even though it can be unbelievably frustrating. But you know when you're trying to get uh, corporate credit cards for your employees from Wells Fargo and they require everyone's social security numbers and all of these things that are such a headache beyond belief and that makes everyone feel super uncomfortable to have to give to you know some big bank and then you f- stumble upon, upon a company Brex that you literally just sign up online and get you know corporate cards mailed to you in like three days I mean it's so like the convenience of so many of these of these companies is to me, I'm I'm so happy with it because otherwise it's such a pain in the butt to, yep. to have to deal. So yeah, we you know. Um, so Gusto's the HR payroll software. Zero is the accounting software. For Brex's corporate cards, um, so we use yeah we use those. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I think. Considering you started out of the crypto castle, are you, do you accept any cryptocurrency as payment for your products? We, we used to, and then it was such a pain in the butt with taxes to have to claim, you know, how it just became so not worth it. No. Um, but we had, so back when we were, back when we had this open sourced um, hardware called the Common Neo, um, a terrible, terrible neon green color, really. We, we, you know, back in the early days, um, there was a company that was building them and selling them. I think they were building them and selling them for one Bitcoin, which at the time was probably $700. And then December 2017, you know, people know Bitcoin rises to 17 grand. So I hope that, um, I, I forget, NeoDriven is their name. I hope they, they did well with their Bitcoin accept, uh, you know, accept transactions. Yeah, I was telling, I, I got to go back and look at the dates, but I think it was 2009 that I was telling people on Facebook. Nine or ten, I don't know. It's freaking early. Maybe it wasn't that early. Maybe it was 2012, but it was really early. I it was when Bitcoin was four hundred dollars, and I said I was I was accepting Bitcoin as payment for speaking events and for coaching. And people are like you're an idiot. Why would you do that? But I ran a digital currency company twenty years ago. I had Starwood Hotels and Bose um, Stereo and uh, Avis Rent-A-Car, Hard Rock Cafe, all paying me with a digital currency instead of a U.S. dollar. We sold the company in 2000. See, so yeah, I had, we had thirty thousand businesses buying and selling using a digital currency. No way. Yeah, it was called it was called ubarter.com. We sold we sold for 64 million, but but it was a real business. We had 
they were open to using digital currencies. Oh yeah, we had, I had start with hotels. We had we had little swipe cards you could actually use it. Some of them using merchant um, their merchant processing, and it was just a bilateral, multilateral trade. And it was it wasn't back. We met with guys at Goldman Sachs, and we're like, wait, so what's backing your your barter dollar? And we went nothing. And they went, oh my god, you you print money. And we went, yeah. And they're like, you're like a country. And we're like, yeah, yeah. pretty much. We actually print <laughs> yeah. our own currency. Because yeah, we, if yeah, we yeah. needed more money, we would just give ourselves a credit line. We'd go buy furniture for the office with our own cryptocurrency. It was crazy. <laughs> um, so I, I've always believed that. I think there's a huge need for it. But I think one day it'll come back around that you can start accepting it again. Yeah. Oh, yes, certainly. It'll, it, it'll, yeah, it's on the up and up despite how people might feel about it. So when you're a lean, when you're a lean startup and a smaller team and you're focused on profitability and not burning through cash, what are you trying to say no to? Um, it's a good question because there's a very fine line between like being too uh, strict with the cash and, you know, therefore not having like, where does productivity and cash spend meet perfectly? Um, so one thing that we did like a, a big overhaul of was services, you know, random services that you sign up for that you forget that you're, you know, signed up to. And then you realize that, you know, at the end of the year you spent you know, 15 plus grand on services. Like, mm. so cutting down on that. Um, also, uh, I mean, honestly, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of like a good amount of PR can be ridiculously expensive if you don't know how to, uh, you know, either if you don't know how to use ad spend correctly, or, you know, you can hire a lot of consultants that a lot of times don't actually add value and that are ridiculously expensive. Yeah. So it's like, how do you, you know, what can, basically what can I do? How much would it cost if someone else did it? And what's the value if someone else does it versus me doing it? Um, and I think most people too, because, you know, because it's a small team, um, it's faster for them to just do most things on their own instead of using, you know, another service or whatever. Um, but also, yeah, 13 person team in San Diego, uh, with, you know, I mean, we have competitive salaries now that we're in San Diego, but in SF definitely less, you know, you start to, yeah, it starts to almost naturally be more lean, certainly naturally be more lean than when you're in San Francisco. You kind of have to be. Take a look, by the way, at my book, Free PR. I think you guys might have a huge opportunity to leverage free publicity in-house, how to generate. It's how when we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we landed 5,200 stories by ourselves with no PR firm. And oh, that, wow. was, that was prior to Facebook launching. So we had no social media platforms to actually leverage our PR on. That was all individual uniques, including yeah. Oprah. So. By the way, I should shout out 1-800-GOT-JUNK because you guys saved us so many times. Awesome. Yeah, we were working out of a house in San Francisco. That stuff, you know, cash piles up quickly. That was our, he was our fifth franchisee, the guy who owns the Bay Area. He does 20 million just in San Francisco on junk oh, removal. Yeah. He's killing it. Yes. All right, yeah. last question we've got. If you were to go back to your younger self, just starting out in your career, what word of advice would you give yourself that now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known then? I would say uh, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, responsibility falls on you, which seems like an obvious thing to say. But if you are, you know, even if you're managing someone and they mess up, that inevitably falls on you. And the second you think in that way, you start to think more like the company, you start to think in a much more productive way to actually getting stuff done, to actually, you know, shipping out products and, um, 
yeah, and and moving a company along because it's it's not it's no longer individually based. So you know, thinking in the sense of you know what responsibility do I give? Um, how do I trust that that person will get it done? And if they don't, okay, that's on me. What do I do? Yeah. Um, or what did you do wrong that let them let that happen? I think um, that's amazing. Ben Ben Horowitz in in his book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, talked about kind of that level of introspection that's really important for leaders that often when we're firing somebody, we're like, oh, I'm glad they're gone. They're terrible at this. They're terrible at that. It's like, well, you hired them. Yeah, exactly. You know, like right. what, so how, what was wrong with the interviewing process? What was wrong with the recruiting process? What was wrong with the top rating or the reference checks or the training program or the leadership? Or like, how did you let this happen? And cool. when we take that level of ownership and introspection, it's powerful. And also on top of that, it doesn't happen again because now it's like, you know, traced back to this point when this was a mistake as opposed to like, you know, let it go as, oh, it's their fault. It's going to happen again. Yeah, that's awesome. Vivian Ford, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you sharing everything you guys are doing with Kama and really excited about what you're doing for autonomous vehicles. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for sharing. All right, have a good one. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.